All right, Super Church, you guys can go ahead and stand up and take off. And Josh, I had asked him if he would preach the first message of the new year. I needed I need to be on the clock today cuz I've got a lot of things to say. <laughs> You're going to want me to have a stopwatch. You got a bell? That would work too. All right. If you want to go ahead and turn to your Bible, you turn your Bibles to, it's going to be kind of one of those days, Romans 8, Philippians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1. You got multiple bookmarks, that would be helpful. Philippians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, Romans 8. So it's that time of year again, time for New Year's resolutions. Right, It's the time of year people like to take a look back at their life, look at the past year, and think, what areas went right, what areas went wrong, how can I improve, how can I grow in something, how can I change. And it might be something that you guys have even done, a lot of people like to do resolutions, maybe you put together a list, or you thought that you should put together a list. Or maybe it's procrastination, you thought you should put together a list and you failed already in that um, goal. But, you know, maybe some of those goals are what you would consider spiritual goals. And to be honest with you, I consider all goals spiritual goals, but that would be a different type of sermon. Um, maybe your, your goals are to get better at the do's, right? Get better at Bible reading, get better at praying, Grow in the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, right? Maybe some of your goals are to get better at not doing the do-nots, right? Don't, maybe I should watch my mouth more. Maybe I shouldn't be angry so much. Maybe I shouldn't yell at people, right? Like, um, so maybe some of the do-nots are on your list. Goals can be good, um, and growing in disciplines can be good. But for today, I would like to take a closer look at change. Uh, Specifically, we would call this sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, being more and more conformed to Christ's will. Since we're human, and since we take good things and we mess them up all the time, we pervert, we distort, we need to be aware of a few really common tendencies when it comes to thinking about growth and change. And I personally have probably done all of these multiple times. So first, I'd like to consider this, right? Sometimes when we look at an area where we want to grow, we attack it and we work on the change. We go about our growth as mere behavior modification. No repentance, no real care for godliness, no real conviction. If you paid super close attention so far, um, pretty much everything I've been saying so far is about self-improvement. There's not a whole lot of real Christianity in it. We are in the self-help age, and you don't need to be a Christian 
to see that there are areas that you need to improve on, right? In fact, there are people that aren't Christian who are walking in this world that are outwardly really good people. There are atheists, there are people in other religions that are outwardly very moral. They could be very kind and generous and merciful, even more so than some Christians that you might know here, or maybe even more than you. You could look at somebody that could be lost and be like, man, they seem like an outwardly better person than I am. You don't have to be a Christian to be able to look at these things and say, man, I, I should be a little bit better here. So Christians can also be about behavior modification. We look at the do's and the don'ts in scripture and we put our heads down and we get to work. Maybe we couch what we're doing in spiritual terms, but what we're really about is modifying our behavior. The motivations behind this type of growth reveal to us what kind of growth that change really is. A person who isn't a Christian is dead in their sin. Their motives aren't pure. They can't be doing this to glorify God or for God. They don't desire that. They're changing, they're modifying their behavior for some other reasons. The Christian does have the ability um, to think spiritually about their change, but oftentimes when there is no conviction and there's no repentance, when there's only focus on the change in behavior, their motives aren't any different than the unbelievers at the end of the day. Some people just merely want to keep the good life, right? Some have seen, so before I was saved, there'd be times in my life where I'd be in a situation, I can think of one in particular, like you just feel grimy. Like you have gotten so into sin that even like the situation that you're in, you could just almost tangibly feel like the, the evil, the, 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 the nastiness of what's going on. You could almost feel it. And if you're honest with yourself in the moment, you don't like it, right? That doesn't feel great. Being um, caught up in sin, once, especially once it starts to catch up to you, like those moments in life aren't fun. And so sometimes as Christians, we see, well, this is bad. This equals bad results. But if I do this, then a lot of times it seems to be good, and if I'm nice to my wife, then my marriage is better, right? So you're, or if I'm doing this at work, then people are respecting me. And so you kind of do a give and take and you're like, well, if I do these moral things, it actually kind of results in a life that I enjoy better. And so we become about behavior modification so that we could live that clean life so that we could get the things in life that we actually enjoy. And it's tempting to think this way, and it's subtle, especially when you've been at the bottom, when you've seen the bad and you've experienced bad situations, to live in the life that is cleaner is a temptation. It's a temptation just to only so focus on that. In reality, the doing and the not doing isn't really connected to a Christian life at all in that situation. We may be justified by faith, a follower of God, but when our actions are like that, our actions just merely look similar to Christianity. It's almost like if you take a base old school baseball coach and he's like, this is a team game. We need a bunt player and, and move players over. We need sacrifice flies. We need you to take more pitches to wear it out, right? Like old school team baseball type of concepts. And then you have the star player. He's not about the team. But that star player gets incentives for bunting or moving players over. 
Like, on the outside, if you're just watching this star player play, you'd look at him and be like, look at that team player. He's doing the, th- the little things to move players over to, to help the team score runs. But in reality, in his heart, the only reason he's doing it is because he likes the money that he's getting. As Christians, we could be like that baseball player. Outwardly, it looks like we're, like we're doing the good things, but our motives inside our hearts um, would betray us on that. The second concern is a form of behavior modification in a way more spiritual sounding terms, but really at the end of the day, it's self-righteous religiosity. This type of behavior modification is about earning standing with God. We call this legalism. I hate, hate legalism. Like I'm a legalist at heart and I hate it. Non-Christian legalism, so non-Christians seek to earn the standing with God. Non-Christian legalists think that they could earn their place in heaven, right? We've all talked to people and you ask them, are you going to heaven? And they say, yeah, I think I'm going to heaven. And you ask them why? And they said, well, because I'm a pretty good person, right? So they think I could do enough good things and I could get myself to heaven. This would be a capital L legalist. They think that they could follow the law or some semblance of the law close enough to where God is going to let them in and be like, well, that was good. You're a pretty good person. Like, come on up and be a non-Christian legalist. A Christian legalist um, knows that, a, um, that they're justified, that they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. The, the Christian knows that justification is a work of God. But the legalistic Christian operates in a way in their lives in almost a way that seems to say this, I got in through grace, but I stay in by my works. So this definition for legalism. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. A legalist is looking to, to themselves to have their standing with God. They look at, like, yes, I'm a Christian. Now i got to earn my way in. Now i got to keep my way in. Yeah, I'm in heaven, right? Like, Jesus has got me here, but, like, I, you start out at the back, right? Like, everybody's worshiping God, like, in a throne room. A legalist says, yeah, we all start in the back, but if I work hard enough, I could be better than you. I could move f- closer. I could move a little bit closer. The proximity of my relationship with Jesus changes because of me, because of my my work so I could keep moving and keep working and I could earn this favor with God God will look at me and be like mean you're good like look at your patience that's impressive that's what a legalist is saying a legalist um, who has lost their motivation is to earn um, them, themselves a place with God they want God to be like I'm for you because of the things that you've done the Christian legalist their motivations also reveal something substandard. Their idea behind following God is to maintain their standing with God, to try to make a God who is always angry at them happy. Their goal, their motivation before God and before chasing holiness is to earn a favor with God. Maybe this will make my father happy with me. 
This type of legalism produces one of two things. It either produces despair or pride. Following the law, trying to live your life, pleasing a God who's angry at you all the time will lead you to despair because you can't do it. You cannot live up to the standards of a holy God in a way that makes God amazed, right? Like God is infinitely holy. What is holy enough to earn favor with God? It ends up with despair. What is, if I'm thinking I need to work on patience, what is patient enough? I could always think of a time where I could have been more patient with my kids or I have pride in my patience, right? My kids do something, I don't react with, with pa- I don't react out of anger, I react with patience, and I think to myself, Josh, you've done it. You've arrived, you finally made it, and then 10 minutes later, you fail. Which do you feel? Pride, despair, failure? What's ever good enough to make God truly pleased with me? What's ever good enough to make God say, I'm for you? Because of what you've done, Josh. What, what's ever good enough there? Jana just sang a song. She said, it said this, In you I rest, in you I find my hope. Legalism can't say that. You're either never good enough, or you think you're good enough in your own power, and you aren't resting in the Lord. There's no peace. There's no freedom in the type of Christianity. And I hope you hear it in my voice because I hate feeling like that. I hate feeling like I'm not good enough because I'm not. I can't. You can, we don't need to earn our place with God. All those end up, all these types of um, motivations end up in a legalistic self-righteousness a focus on being a better person, a pick-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps Christianity. It's a law-focused Christianity, not a gospel-focused. This is going to be a long sermon. Which brings me to my third concern, and when I would guess we've all fallen for. There are times in our lives when we have true conviction, true repentance of sin, and so we pray. We ask God, man, like, I'm not holy here. I need to be growing in you here and it's a genuine thing and so we go to work and before you know it that thing that we're working on becomes the thing no longer am i working to glorify god no longer if i am i pursuing god in this but again patience it becomes on my mind i i maybe put together a list here are the 10 areas where i can improve or here's these verses here's this bible study i'm doing with somebody and all of a sudden the thing that helps me get somewhere becomes the thing. And it's, it's so subtle. Sanctification is obviously a, a great thing. Increasing in holiness is a good and right thing to be concerned with. And the new year is not some extra special time to consider that, right? Like it's just it's the launching off point for the sermon. We should be concerned with growing in the Lord at all times. And Today, I'd like to look at a small part of this. So a, a small part of what scripture has to say. I told you it's going to be a long sermon. Um, about sanctification and our response and motivations to the growth. We may not get a complete look. I, 
there's no may. We're not going to get a complete look. There's a lot of passages. We're going to get more of a framework today on growth. And I want to ask, answer almost the, these specific questions. So the questions are this. How do we keep our focus on glorifying God in our good works and not slip into mere moralism or legalism or behavior modification? Or in other words, why and how should a Christian pursue holiness? So to answer the why, we need to start at the beginning. (laughs) Who God is, who we are, who Jesus is in the gospel, and then who we are in light of the gospel. If we skip these steps, if we jump straight to trying to do the right things and not do the wrong things, we risk self-righteousness. We risk putting ourselves under the very law that we've already agreed with God on that we have failed to keep. We risk feeling like failures and discouragement, a feeling of being enslaved by the very law that David said he delighted in. We risk feeling like, 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 like failures, or, or we risk pride and arrogance and a feeling of self-righteous smugness and judgment towards others that aren't as spiritual as you. So we start with God. And this is a group participation. What are some attributes of God that excite you, that that, that have been on your mind, or what is God showing you about himself? Shout him out. Patient. Holy. Sovereign. Mercy. Gracious. Faithful. This is how we start. This is how we should start when we think about, I need to grow. We need to look at God, sovereign, merciful, creator of the universe. This is a God who spoke and all things became, just with mere words. No power extinct, like like, it's sent out of God to where it's like it's draining, like, oh, I lifted as much weight as I could and now I'm tired. I mean, God just merely speaks universes created. Holiness. God in his throne room when Isaiah was taken up. Isaiah, who's a prophet of God, who spoke God's words to the people, taken up. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The seraphim, or the cherubim, one of the two, um, standing by the throne room of God, by the throne of God, holy, 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 and the, the foundations of the throne room are shaking at the declaration of his holiness. Physically tangible, that's how holy God is. It affects physical reality to be declared. That is who God is, and that is who we're saying we're trying to, to, um, to appease with our good works. Like, does your holiness like, ever affect people physically like that? It, you're staring at me right now. None of you are shying away, so I guess I'm not glowing with my holiness today. <laughs> I forgot my moisturizers and things like that. No, like... We're sinful, right? Like that's all throughout the Bible. So you have this glorious and holy and wonderful and infinitely good God. And you have man. 
and he's given everything. Take dominion over the world, and we fell. We sinned, and just because, um, and it's not just like Adam and Eve are the ones to blame. I do it too. I do the same thing we all do. We all fall short of the glory of God, but Jesus, right? Like this is the Bible. This is what God is doing. He's revealing himself to us and how he's gonna rescue for himself a people. And so Jesus comes and Jesus lives the perfect life. He's perfectly holy and his sacrifice is transferred to all who believe in him, like all people. And so if you are a Christian, like it is because of Jesus' work. So then we move to who we are. So let's look at chapter, uh, chapter 8 of verse Romans, and we're going we're gonna to fly through these. Verse 1, who are we? This is just one chapter in the Bible, by the way. Here is who you are, who you already are in Christ. Note, you are. You are these things already. These are not earned. You are not condemned, verse 1. Verse 2, you are set free. Verse 9, you have the Holy Spirit who, in verse 4, allows you to live according to the Spirit which brings life and peace. Verse 13, you're given life. Verse 17, you're children of God, co-heirs with Christ. Verse 23, we await complete adoption. We are adopted by God. We are in the family. You are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. We are redemption. We await redemption for our bodies. We have the Holy Spirit as helper, God himself as our helper indwelling us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Verse 30, um, we will be glorified. Verse 31, God is for us. Like just dwell if if people were to dwell on this before every, every part of the day, the beginning of the day, it'd solve like a percentage, a big percentage of your problems. God is for you, full stop. And in Romans 8, who could be against you? Who could bring a charge against you? God is already for you. Like you have God of the universe on your side in a courtroom. Are you good enough or bad enough? And God is arguing for you? Like you're... You're good. He's already for you. In 37, you're more than conquerors. Verse 38 and 39, inseparable from our Father. Inseparable. That's just one chapter in the Bible. If you're a Christian, God is for you. You aren't just tolerated because of Jesus. It's not like God begrudgingly accepts you because of Jesus, and then we gotta spend the rest of our life and the rest of our time trying to make him not regret it. Like, like, like you're in, but there are others who are more in. No, that's not how it works. God is completely for you because Jesus not only already paid the punishment for your sin, but because of his righteousness, his perfection, his perfect life as a God-pleasing, God-honoring, God-glorifying person, that life is transferred to you. So you're declared not guilty, and you're also given and transferred this righteousness. You're clothed in Christ's righteousness, and so God looks at you already and said, he's mine, she's mine. There's nothing that you need to add to that. 
What can we bring to the table that adds to the holiness of Jesus in our lives? Our works add less to the ocean of Jesus' perfection and holiness than if we were to throw a thimble full of water into the ocean. It doesn't move the needle. We are God's and you are loved, period. There is nothing you need to do nor can do that will make you more of God's beloved child. Once we have reflected on that and only after that, once we reflected on who God is and who we are and our need of our Savior, our need for a Savior who, um, who we're in and in light of, of the finished work of Jesus, now we can ask this. What are we to do now that I'm already in the family? What do we do now? Not that we are, now that we are the sons and daughters of the King, now that we are unified with Christ and co-heirs with Him already, what do I do in light of that? It's only after we look to God and the good news of Jesus and his finished work, the unbelievable grace and mercy that he's shown toward us, that we move forward. See, the gospel is still good news for Christians. The gospel isn't just something to think about before and during, like, while we're getting saved and then we moved on. God's character, his attributes, his grace and mercy and his love should be before us at all times. Because it's at that point when our minds and our hearts are oriented towards our creator, our sustainer, our king, our savior, that we naturally ask this question, how can I serve my generous and holy God? How can I glorify the one that has done so much for me. Those thoughts and those passions for our Savior that we stir up when we reflect on Him should be our driver for our pursuit of holiness. How can I obey the King of the universe? How can I honor Him? How can I reflect Him to my friends and family and coworkers and and people I love at church? How can I be conformed to his will? How can I walk with my God? How do I grow in my sanctification, in my holiness? So we answer those questions, at least the core concept. Second Thessalonians 2. This is the passage, actually, that I was trying to get to all along, but we had some background work to do. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition every, your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have time to break this passage down in great detail, but I want to highlight a few things. Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church and they are suffering from some persecution and trials. And these verses are meant to encourage them to keep pushing on, to keep on, to keep growing. Paul's prayer for the church was that God would make them worthy of his calling. Notice who is making the person worthy. God. 
but it's not you. It's not the individual. It's not a person's ability internally to be really, really good. It's not the person's personal discipline and strength of character. It's God who's making the person worthy. And then Paul went on to write how God would do it, that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. A few notes on this. God would make someone worthy of their calling by working that out through his power. I don't think that anything we saw here is generated internally by the person. The person has desires for goodness and good deeds because of the Holy Spirit's work in their life. The very fact that a person can desire true biblical goodness is from God. And the good needs, good deeds, come from faith in God. And faith is also a gift from God. So what we see here is that the Christians would desire goodness and good things and that through faith, which is a gift from God, through faith in God, in his power, would bring out the goodness and good good works and would make them worthy of his calling, which again are God-given desires. And God would do this, Paul prayed, so that God would be glorified or praised and that we would also be glorified. So why should we want to grow in good deeds, good works? What is our ultimate motivation in our pursuit of holiness? Why? Why should we pursue it? Isaiah 60, 21. Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. That's God speaking. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were, brought, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The Westminster Catechism sums up the idea this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the chief end of our God-given, God-empowered, grace-filled works are so that God can be glorified. We don't chase the do's and the do nots as the end goal. The patience or love or meekness that we seek isn't the point of our life. The law is never the point of our life. God is. Glorifying God in our actions glorifying God in our pursuit of holiness. We pursue holiness because we want to point people to God and and to praise God and to to heap everything we can at the, the creator of the universe. God is more worthy of all glory and praise and adoration than all the people in history can possibly give him. He doesn't need us to glorify him. He is who he is, infinitely good but he enables his people to reflect his goodness and kindness and love so that he will get the glory and the credit. And then to add on top of that, we see in verse 12, God glorifies his people. Now this type of glory isn't in the same ballpark as the glory that God gets. See, he's deserving of all glory and honor. He's worthy, but we're not. The glory we receive is a grace. It's a blessing 
and a gift. And even the act of glorifying his people, making his people into a worthy bride for the son, reflects on who God is and not who we are. It's all about God. This, it is a, a beautiful, amazing, like mind-blowing thing that God looks at us and it's like, I'm going to glorify them. I'm going to make them worthy of my son, right? When he hands us off as a bride. There was a Chiefs player who played last year, a, a running back who didn't play that much. And he had a, has kind of a funny inter- interview at the end of the season. I think it was before the Chiefs won. And he's like, and they're interviewing him. He's like, I haven't done much. <laughs> like, I mean, he hardly played, right? And he was, it was funny because he acknowledged it, right? Because most people want to act like they're part of the team. He's like, I'm just here to get a ring, basically. Like, that's almost like what we're, we're getting dragged along here, along here right? Like in the, with the Chiefs, it's the star players that are doing it. The, like the guy that hardly dresses out, he's not putting in near as much as like something like Mahomes or somebody would, right? But we are co-heirs with Christ. We are blessed through Christ, and we will be glorified because of the work of Christ. It's a grace of God. This concept isn't only found in this verse. It's in multiple spots. Let's look at one, Philippians. Philippians 2, actually. Apparently I deleted Philippians 1 out of my notes. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God has a good purpose in your life and he is working it out and he will accomplish what he purposes to do. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He's all-loving, all-holy. The declaration of his holiness shakes the throne room. And if you are a Christian, God is for you. Through Jesus, you are his child, and he loves you. He's got you. He will not leave you or um, forsake you. He doesn't just save you, open up your eyes to your sin, dump you in the gutter, and it's like, figure it out now. Now that you can see how much of a fool you are and understand how, false sh- how, how much you fall short, work harder. Like, you already were failing here. I'm just going to open your eyes to it. You're in. Don't worry about that. But like, you got a ton of work to do. Good luck. He doesn't leave us there. He's with you and he's for you and he will work his will out in your life for his good pleasure and ultimately for his glory. And since he is loving and good, that good will and pleasure is for your benefit as well. You will grow in holiness on this earth because you are his child. And because you are his child, he will complete that work in you and you will be made perfect when he returns. Heaven and earth will be made new, as will his children. And it will be glorious, and there will be pure joy as we understand more and more and more just how great our Father is. And it's with this attitude of awe and humility and joy that we can now start to answer the question, how should we pursue holiness? So far we've learned that We can pursue holiness, growth in the Lord, ultimately to glorify God. And now we see the how begins with a right posture before the Lord, with the right attitude, 
We don't pursue holiness to earn favor with God. We don't pursue holiness so that God will be for us. We don't pursue holiness for respect from people. We don't approach God in a way that says, here you go, look at what I've done. No, it is God who grows. It is God who is justified. It is God who has rescued you. And so we approach our lives of pursuing holiness in a posture of humility and joy that we could now glorify the creator of the universe. We get to reflect him to others. We have the opportunity to grow in our Christ-likeness. Modifying our behavior isn't the goal. Being conformed to Christ is the path we take to glorifying the one who has rescued us. That's the end goal. So it's with that in mind that we move to answer a question that you might be thinking now. Josh, you skipped the verse in front of verse 13. Let's put it together. 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So that is part two of how to pursue holiness. First, our posture and our attitudes should line up with the reality of who God is and who we are. And then second, we work with fear and trembling. We fight, we claw with everything that we have. Have you ever heard the phrase, let go and let God? I've probably used it myself. It's wrong. It's not the right way to explain what's going on here. These two verses are incredibly deep. I mean, I've, I talked, I don't know how long, with Jerry just exploring the concept of sanctification. And then how do you understand it's God working and you're working. These are, it's, it could be super complicated and deep, and those are great things, but I don't think that you need to be the deepest of thinkers on this to live by these verses, to live by faith on these verses. Think away. I like it. It's fun. But you could live in faith on these verses. They're incredibly deep. But how do we grow? We work. With everything we have, we fight, we scratch, we claw. With everything we have, we seek to live according to who we already are declared to be by God. Become who you already are. And we do so knowing that any progress we see, that growth and holiness that we see, is from God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we walk and we fight in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. I believe this framework is the antidote to the three concerns that we went over. Problem one, behavior modification. Who cares? What a horrible end goal in life. Change for the sake of moralism or change with no regard for the creator and his glory. Reflecting on God should help us to make glorifying God the end goal and not to help us, um, and not the, the good works or the actions of the end goal. Legalism, again, self-righteousness. When we reflect on who God is, his holiness and goodness, why do we think that we could be worthy by our own power? Repentance and then forgetting this framework will help there too as we orient ourselves under our creator. So what? 
what do we do? I mean, we sh if you're like me, and I'm going to go ahead and bet that you are, there are things that you need to grow in. There, there is holiness to be pursued. So let me give you, again, general ideas, because look, each one of us, and I don't even know what God is going to work on you today on or tomorrow on. I don't know. But I can give you some general ideas. One, read the Bible less like a handbook of laws and morals to live by. The Bible isn't Aesop's fables. Read it more to learn about your creator and the one who has rescued you from the wrath of God. Reflect on, praise God, talk to each other about the awesomeness of God. The wonderful things that God, this is what his community is for. Reflect on it. Use your minds that God has given you. Remember who you are in Christ. Like who you already are. God is already for you. There's nothing you need to do to work there. Remember why and how we change. Start with your heart. What are your motives? You can't, I've tried this, so I know you can't do it. You can't make your motives pure. <laughs> like, I can look at myself sometimes and be like, I know I need to change here, and I know that my heart should be right here. Come on, Josh. Like, change. Like, desire it for the right reasons, you fool. It doesn't work. You can't convince your heart to want to change for the right reasons. So pray. <laughs> like, go to God, the one who could change your, your motives. Realize it's in God's power. And then respond in repentance and humility and joy that you get to serve and follow the commands of a holy God. And that you doing that will bring praise to God. God is pleased with your good works. Like, it's because of the power that he gives you with, with in Jesus Christ. He's already pleased with you, but you could please him in your good works. And we have the opportunity to do that in the power of God. Get to work by walking in the power of the Spirit. You have the flesh that you're fighting against. Listen to the Holy Spirit who already lives inside of you and is teaching you and telling you, like, hey, be kind, be generous, do this. And last, community, we don't pursue personal holiness in a vacuum. What's the sum of the law? Love God and love others. The proper outworking of your growth in holiness is first to love God and foremost by glorifying him, right? And then often that growth, that personal holiness plays out in community. Who are you being patient towards? Who is meekness for? Who is gentleness and humility? How is a community reflecting Christ? Together, this church, we glorify God when we come together and we use the gifts that God has given us, imperfect vessels, but together we, we show people and we're to reflect God to our neighbors and community. 
So pursue holiness, but do it with a right attitude and a right posture. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for your love, for your your guidance, your correction in our lives, Lord. We thank you that we don't have to earn status with you. That you love us more than we could ever imagine already, despite knowing who we were, who we are in our innermost thoughts and the things that we will do. And you're still for us. We thank you and help that to drive our desire for holiness, that gratitude and humility, that we could glorify you with everything that we have. Amen.